Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, along with others of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, Bearspaw, and also in South Calgary, who, as you heard, are, are celebrating their official opening in their new location. And I want them to know that we love them, that we're behind them. And so would you just make a little bit of noise? Okay, so I invite you now to open your Bibles, your Bible app, to Romans chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? In this passage, Jesus reminds us that true and lasting significance and fulfillment in life is not found in pursuing the temporary things of life. No, they are found in pursuing God and his call for our lives or worshiping and glorifying God in all things. Well, here in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul describes what a God-glorifying life looks like. Last time in verses 3 to 8, we learned that we worship and glorify God when we serve others. God is glorified every time a teacher explains the truth of God's word to others, be they children, be they youth, or be they adults, be they adults. God is glorified every time a singer sings, a, a person gives, a writer writes, a shepherd cares, a leader leads, an artist creates, a, a caregiver encourages, or a servant serves. And they do it all, not to get the glory for themselves, but to give all the glory to God. Which brings us to verse 9, where we're called to worship and to glorify God in our relationships. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able, and join me in reading these verses together. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, its instruction for life. Lord, we ask that you would now help us to remove all distractions and to focus in on what it is you want to say to us. Help us to receive what you want to say to us. And more than that, Lord, help us to do what you want us to do or to be who you want us to be. For I pray it all in your precious name. Amen. Maybe seated. Now, in the passage that we just read, Paul is essentially saying every time you love someone the way that God loves you, in other words, every time you respond to someone with kindness, or every time you honor someone above yourself, 
Or every time you encourage someone or pray for someone, you are giving adoration to the Lord. On the other hand, every time you harbor bitterness towards someone, every time you lash out at someone in a harsh way, or you slander someone, or you pass on negative gossip about someone, you are not glorifying God. In fact, you're revealing that there is still something wrong within you. There's still something in you that's harboring, that's holding on to to stuff, something that you haven't surrendered to God. Now in John 13, Jesus said this about his disciples. He said this to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what Jesus is saying here is that the identifying mark of his new kingdom, of the identifying mark of his church, the identifying mark of a genuine Christ follower is that we love one another. Now, I don't think that there's anything more attractive to a hurting and a lonely world than the love of God that is being displayed in the life of his children. When Christians really love each other the way that God loves us, other people are not only drawn to us, we see that in the early church. Remember the phrase, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved? And it was because they were loving each other. People wanted to be in on that. But more than just wanting to be part of that community, they wanted to be drawn. They were drawn to Jesus himself. And so the question is, what does God-pleasing love look like? Well, Paul spells that out in the remainder of this chapter. In verse 9 to 13, he teaches what love looks like in the church. And in verse 14 to 21, he teaches what godly love looks like when we relate to those outside of the church in our, our world. Today we're going to look at the first of these. What real love looks like among Christians. Now I say real love because our culture uses love in many different ways. And we say, you know, I love pizza and I love my wife in the same sentence. Now, surely we love our spouse in a different way than we love pizza. At least I sure hope we do. But this is a good example of how most people think of love in our culture. They see love in relation to how it makes them feel. They love whatever or whoever makes them feel good. I call it human love. Human love says, as long as you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Human love says, as long as you make me happy, well, then I'll love you. But if you stop making me happy, well, then my love for you is going to change. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this isn't love, but it's actually a very selfish love. It's really all about me. It's all about meeting all of my needs and my wants, which isn't biblical love at all. Now, the Greek word that's used primarily in this passage we're looking at today is agape, or a godly, divine love. 
Agape love is not based on feelings. It is a decision to love you whether you are worthy of love or whether you love me back or not. It is choosing to put your interests ahead of my own because of my sincere love for Jesus Christ who gave it all for me. And also because of a decision on my part to love you the way that God has loved me and continues to love me. And so what Paul is describing here in these verses is an agape love or a godly love. And it's important we keep that distinction in mind as we look at what love looks like. First of all, a godly love is genuine. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, love must be sincere. When Paul says love is sincere, he's saying, let your love be real. And let your love be genuine. In other words, don't be a hypocrite by smiling and saying nice things to someone and then turn around and, and, and gossip negatively about them or criticize them. Now, undoubtedly, some of you are thinking, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, if someone's hurt me, or if someone is just plain annoying, are you telling me I should just stop being polite and outwardly display my disgust or my hurt that I feel toward them? Well, no, I'm not really saying that. That only makes things worse. Matthew 18 teaches that if someone has hurt you, or if someone is living contrary to something clearly taught in the scriptures, then you're to meet with that person privately and with a spirit of humility, and I underline that, in a spirit of humility and love, share your concern with them. If the person acknowledges their sin and asks for your forgiveness, then forgive them and carry on as if that sin had never happened. If it's a disputable issue that the Bible does not give a definitive answer to, then you can agree to disagree and move on with your lives. But what if a person has an irritating personality and you just don't like them very much? Well, to my knowledge, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to like someone. But we are called to love everyone. And the way to love someone is to treat them as if you did like them, or in the same way you would like them to treat you, with kindness and respect. Now you say, you know, isn't that being hypocritical? I mean, why should I do this when I don't feel like doing this? Because even when we were yet sinners, even when we were filled with brazen pride, unbridled sin, and selfishness, and just plain ugliness, Christ put aside his feelings, and he died for us. And he chose not only to love and forgive us, but to treat us as if we had never sinned. This is the way that Jesus loves you and me. And this is the way, therefore that we begin to genuinely and sincerely love others. Always remembering what Jesus has done for us. And so we glorify God when our love 
is genuine. Secondly, godly love is based on God's truth. Paul writes, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, hate is a strong word. I mean, why does God's love hate evil? Because evil hurts people. It destroys and damages people's lives and their relationships. And so we ought to hate evil and be prepared to take a stand against it in a loving way, of course. But we shouldn't ignore evil. Now, why is this so important? Well, because, you see, when you love someone, your feelings for that person can be so intense that it can begin to mess with your sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil. I'm reminded of the lyrics of songs that tell us things like, if loving you is wrong, well, then I don't want to be right. (laughs) Or it can't be wrong if it feels so right. It just can't be. And so when someone that you love does something you know is wrong, you see what happens is you're tempted to not say anything because you don't want to be, you know, upset them. You don't want them not loving you. But you see, that's not a sign of godly love. That is actually a selfish act. Because them loving or liking you is more important to you than challenging them about something that may ultimately hurt them badly. Parents often do this. They want so desperately to be liked, to be adored by their child, that often they won't confront them about something that could not only hurt them, but possibly destroy their lives and their future. Real love, divine love, is concerned about truth. Now Proverbs 6 lists seven things we're to hate. And we're to hate them because God hates them. And here they are. Haughty eyes, that's pride and arrogance. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, that's murder. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And God says, when you become aware of a lie, or you become aware of someone who is scheming to hurt someone else, or a person who's going around stirring up dissension and conflict, you know, the person who who seeks to undermine the direction, the vision of the church with negative comments, with criticisms, or pulls you aside in a dark hallway and milks you for any dirt that you have on someone because they're trying to build a case to destroy that person's reputation. Paul says, when you see that, don't you turn a blind eye to that. You need to hate that kind of behavior and confront those at the center of it in a loving but in a firm way because 
it not only grieves the heart of God, but it divides, it can even destroy the church that Christ is building. Friends, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to love what he loves and the more you're going to hate what he hates. And so we glorify him when our love is based not just on our feelings, but it's based on God's truth. And then thirdly, godly love is devoted to others. Paul writes, be devoted to one another in love. The Greek words used in this sentence are phileo and storge, which refers to a deep friendship or a family type of love. The idea here is that our love for one another in the church should resemble the love at, that's at work in a healthy nuclear family. Now Paul is saying to the church, we should love one another as if we were related. Now I know, <laughs> I know for a growing number of people, the word family raises all kinds of negative emotions. Because family, their family wasn't only unhealthy and dysfunctional, but it left deep wounds and left scars. And of course, this is not the kind of family model that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about healthy families. But let's be honest. Even healthy families have lots of up and downs. Even healthy families have lots of differences, heated arguments, lots of hurt, disappointments, even jealousy and envy. But you see, when all the fireworks are over, healthy families are still devoted to each other. Even when we disagree over COVID protocols, for example, we say, despite all of that, we're still a family. We're in this together. He's still my brother. She's still my daughter. We're not giving up, we're not walking away, no. We're gonna make it through this. Love is constant, it endures, it never changes. And whatever we face going forward in our future, which seems increasingly uncertainty, friends, we're gonna need this kind of love for one another. A love that endures, that hangs in there. Fourthly, godly love puts others first. In verse 10, we're told to honor one another above yourselves. One of the things that leads to relational conflict and division is when people focus on themselves rather than others. When they're mostly looking inward, they're looking at their rights, they're looking at their privileges, they're looking at their prestige, and they're not giving very much thought at all to how others around them are doing or feeling. Even though there's nothing wrong in wanting to be honored, God calls us to be humble and to focus on honoring others above ourselves. The word honor means to treat someone or something as valuable and precious. Christianity teaches that every person has great value 
because every person is made in the image of God. Every person around you is someone that Jesus died for and is infinitely precious and important in the eyes of God and should be treated as such. The reality is many of you are out in the trenches day after day and you are being ignored, you're being shunned, you're being canceled, you're being mistreated, you're being shamed, and often you're being spoken to in harsh and unkind ways. Well, Jesus wants his church to be different. He wants us to outdo one another. Hey, if you're one of those competitive types, I found a good biblical way to really be competitive and, to and, and for God to really love it. We're to outdo one another in honoring and esteeming other people. Regardless of a person's race, a person's age, gender, socioeconomic status, or anything else that causes distance between people, Jesus calls us to treat everyone with honor and respect. And one of the ways we can do that is to regularly express appreciation to one another. To think of ways of how we can encourage each other. And by not caring who gets the credit. You know, years ago I ran across a saying that has helped me find victory over that natural tendency of wanting to get the credit. It reads this way. There is no limit to what God can do through a person who doesn't care who gets the credit. If you don't care who gets the credit, well, then you can just enjoy yourself. You can just be yourself. You can just do what it is that God's calling you to do and leave it at that. You don't have to sit there looking for the credit. See what I did? You don't care about who gets the credit. You are freed to focus on others and to encourage and build them up. And you see, when we love like this and we put others first, we're glorifying God. And then fifthly, a godly love is passionate about serving the Lord. Paul writes, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, zeal means enthusiasm, and fervor means passion. And Paul's talking about an enthusiasm and a passion that's based on a deep conviction within. You see, we're, we aren't loving out of some sense of obligation or some sense of religious duty. No, our love for God, our enthusiasm for God and others is boiling over from the truth of God's word and God's mission and also who we are in Christ. In Revelation 3.15, the Lord said this to the church at Laodicea. He said, I know your deeds that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The Lord says... I can't stand lukewarmness. He's not glorified by those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
He's not glorified by those who sit on the fence and just kind of go through the motions of church. No, God's glorified by those who are passionate and enthusiastic about God and the things that matter to God. Now make no mistake, this does not always come naturally or easily. You will not always feel real enthusiastic or passionate about loving God or loving other people. It's going to require disciplining yourself to make a decision to love even when you don't feel like it but you do it anyways because of your love and commitment to Jesus Christ and your conviction that he is the way the truth and the life and that he's the answer to what's wrong in our world so how do you keep your spiritual fervor How do you stay hot and passionate in your love for God and others? Well, here again, Paul spells out four things that will help us with that in verses 11 and 12. First, when your spiritual zeal and fervor is waning, remember who you are serving. Look at verse 11 again. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving who? serving the Lord. There will be days when you're going to be really tired. For some of you, that day is right now. I can tell. (laughs) Just don't snore, okay? Just don't (laughs) snore. But there will be days you are tired. There will be days you'll be upset. By the way, someone that here you were trying to encourage and help them, and yet they responded to you in such an unkind way. There will be days you'll feel misunderstood, unappreciated, underpaid, and you just want to quit and give up. But Paul says, remember, you aren't working for that critical, self-centered, unappreciative boss. No, you are working for the Lord. Whatever you're facing, Keep your zeal and your spiritual fervor for the Lord alive by remembering that you are doing this not for others. You're not even doing this for yourself and for your glory. No, you are doing this for the Lord and his glory. And in Matthew 6, Jesus promises us that when we do things to glorify him, rather than ourselves, our heavenly father will reward us in heaven, which I have no doubt will surpass by far the greatest possible reward we could ever receive in this life. In fact, Jesus really warns us by telling us in Matthew 6 that we have a choice. If we want to receive all the glory, all the attention, all the reward in this life, well, Jesus said, then you have your reward you will not be rewarded in the next life. So keep your spiritual zeal and fervor alive by remembering you are serving the Lord. Furthermore, when your spiritual zeal and fervor is waning, remind yourself of the hope we have in Christ. Paul writes, be joyful in hope. He's saying, remember the first 
11 chapters of, Ro- of Romans, of what God has done for us in Christ. We are not under condemnation anymore. In fact, in the eternal realm, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us as forgiven and righteous, and therefore we are headed for heaven. And no matter what this world throws at us, no matter how much it abuses us or confuses us or disappoints us, God has promised that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see, the truth of that causes us not only to know hope, but also to experience joy. And then thirdly, when your spiritual zeal and fervor are waning, be patient. That's what Paul says here. When you're facing trials and hardships, remember that even though we do not understand why this is happening, we know that God has a loving and a good purpose for allowing it, and we can trust him. We can trust him with it, and that one day we will understand. And then fourthly, when your spiritual zeal and fervor are waning, be faithful in prayer, he says. When facing hardships and pressures, It's easy to lose God's perspective. And when you lose the perspective of what life is really all about from God's point of view, it won't be long before you lose the spiritual fervor to keep on keeping on. You're going to find yourself becoming far less loving and far more irritable and grumpy. But when you pray, all of that begins to change because You see, as you pray, you're being reminded that God is God and that you're not, that he's in control and that his way is perfect whether you understand it or not. You are being reminded of his eternal perspective and that the battle that you're facing is not yours at all. It's his. You know, all this reminds me of the story of David and Goliath and how the entire army of Israel are shaking in their boots, they're despairing, they're feeling helpless and hopeless because of their fear of this giant. And along comes David, and he isn't afraid. He looks at mighty Goliath, this hulk of a man, and he asks this question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living Lord? I mean, who does he think he is mocking our living God? Now, where did David get this kind of courage? Well, David tells us in verse 7, 47. He says, this battle with Goliath, this isn't mine. No, this battle is the Lord. I mean, this guy, this big hulk of man, he's messing. He's not messing with me. He's messing with my God. And this is what Paul is saying here in verses 11 and 12. 
When life is hard and you're facing hardships, the key to keeping your spiritual fervor alive is to surrender whatever concerns you have to God in prayer and to remember that this is not your battle. It is the Lord's. Leave it with Him. And when you do that, you're going to experience the joy and the peace of the Lord. And then finally, a godly love is generous. In verse 13, Paul writes, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. When God's grace and love gets a hold of you, you become more generous. In Paul's day, there was no unemployment insurance. There was no health care or any other of the social safety nets um, like we have today. But we must not forget that even these social safety nets today still fall short at times. And that people, sometimes because of unwise decisions on their part, people are still hurting. People still have deep needs. And we need to be sensitive as a church to what we can do to help meet their spiritual needs. And practically what that means is we're sensitive what's going on to the people that are part of our small group or who are in our community group or who are in our ministry groups, people we're serving alongside of. Or even those that God just brings across our path. We're called to bear one another's burdens and this will involve not only praying fervently for them, but it may also mean opening up our wallets or offering our time and our talents to help someone who is in genuine need. I mean, that's what a spiritual family does, right? Now, of course, immediately we wonder, well, how can I know if the need is genuine? How can I know that I'm not being taken advantage of? Or how can I know if I'm helping them to continue in their addictions? Well, make no mistake, you will be taken advantage of at times. I know I have many times. But I don't regret that. Because even though I may have misjudged a person's need or their motive, I did what I believed the Spirit of God was prompting me to do. And in every case, I prayed that God would use what I gave to ultimately bring them to a place where they would come to know the Jesus that I know and love. And having been around here for 100 plus years, I've had the joy of seeing some of those prayers answered. I've had the joy of some of those people coming back and saying thanks and then just to let me know that they were now walking with Jesus. And you may help people and you may never have someone come back and say thanks. But you can know 
that God will use your faithfulness to make an eternal difference in the life of someone else. But let me also add this. We are called to be good stewards of the resources God has given to us. And so I'm grateful that we can partner with our church's compassion ministry and point people to this ministry because we have individuals in that ministry who are trained to assess what a person's real need is and also how to help them in the best way possible. And so I encourage you to not only support our compassion ministry and our new Canadian Friendship Centre with your time and your abilities and your finances, but also to partner with them in discerning how you can best help someone in need. Now, Paul also says here, we glorify God when we practice hospitality. COVID pretty much shut down hospitality the last two and a half years. But my observation is, is that Christians in North America and beyond, in the Western world, stopped practicing hospitality long before COVID hit. And yet, few things, my wife and I have found, few things communicate love and that we care for others more than inviting them into our homes for a meal, a Bible study, a fellowship time, or whatever. So why aren't we more hospitable? Sometimes it's because we're just too busy and we're just too preoccupied with other things. We have no time left to cultivate relationships. Other times it's because we see our home as our private space and we don't want anyone invading it. And sometimes it's because we feel unsafe inviting strangers into our home. And that is a growing concern these days, unfortunately. But if that's the case, why not use a bit of a different strategy? Why not get together with your family or some close friends, uh, your, your community group, and plan to have a potluck after a church service in the church atrium or, or the, or the um, foyer of the campus that you attend? And each of you prayerfully, after a service, seek out people that you're going to invite to join you. You just bring a little bit extra food in your, in your pot. We'll help you. Set up tables or do whatever we can to make it happen. Just let us know. Or if you're not into potlucks, which by the way, if you're not into potlucks, you're missing one of life's greatest joys. But if you're not into potlucks, why not do the same thing and invite a few people out for lunch after a worship service? Now, having said that, I want to celebrate the many people in our church who do practice hospitality. God bless you. And I particularly want to celebrate those who have taken in people who have had to flee Ukraine this past year. What a powerful demonstration of love and action. Okay. We've come to the end. And so I'm wondering, how are you doing after diving into this long list of how we can love as Christians that Paul gives here? If you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. And so to help us with this, I, I, I'm going to close with just a couple of next steps of how you can grow 
in your love for others. First of all, take some time to be alone with the Lord. A half a day, a day of your vacation. Just turn to him. And during that time, ask the Lord to teach you and to show you how you can love others more like he loves you. Ask him to direct you to a teaching series or to direct you to a book or even things in the word to help you with that. Ask him to show you how you can love your spouse more deeply, how you can love your children, your parents, your close friends, your working associates, your neighbors in a deeper and a meaningful way. Ask him also to show you where he would have you love others by serving them. He may lead you to others by serving in the church or perhaps in some other ministry. Keep bringing this to him in prayer and anticipate his answers and his direction in your life. In addition to that, each day when you wake up, open your hands to him and say, Lord, show me today who you want me to love, who you want me to serve, and show me how you want me to do that. And then step into your day knowing that he is with you. Listen expectantly for his promptings and then carry out the assignments that he gives you because he will if you're listening. And I can assure you, as you do this day after day, not only will you grow more to be a more loving person, but you will experience joy beyond measure. And then secondly, step out in faith and prayerfully invite others to join you in community with the purpose being to learn, to live, and to love like Jesus. Hebrews 10 verse 24 tells us that the key to getting fired out about loving and serving people the key to spurring one another on with love and good deeds is, to, is found in relationships with other like-minded Christians. You see, Christ has called us to belong, not just to believe. He established the church because he knows we need one another to learn what it means to love God and to love one another. And to challenge each other to live and to love and to serve the way that Jesus did. And so regardless of what kind of group you decide to get connected with, be it a small group, be it a community group, be it a ministry group, be it a same gender group of men or women, I challenge you to discover the joy, the encouragement, the, the motivation and the accountability that comes to love others as we are loved by Jesus when you intentionally cultivate a relationship with a few other like-minded believers. And I can tell you from personal experience, when you do, your Christian life will go to another whole new level of excitement and intimacy with God. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Now, as I said a moment ago, I know when you go through a long list, like the Apostle Paul gives us here, 
of how we're to love God and love other people. It can be, it can just feel overwhelming. We can feel so inadequate. We don't even know where to start. Well, I just want to remind you that you can't love like this in your own strength. I can't love like this in my own strength. Only Jesus can love like this. But if we humble ourselves and we reach out to him and we ask him, he will live his life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. He will live the fruit of his spirit through us. So I'm going to invite you to go to him right now and to ask, Lord, what what are you saying to me through this teaching? And Lord, what do you want me to do about it? And then after a time of reflection, we're going to pray together, but we're going to do it in song. And I hope that this song that we sing together will not only be a prayer you pray now, but it'll be a prayer that you pray each and every day going forward. Just take a moment to be with him right now.